Welcome back to part two of episode 13 of the Give Us Time podcast, the podcast that highlights the extraordinary members of our armed forces and their families. We are joined by Andy Shaw. In part one, we discussed Andy running away at 16 to the sea and circumnavigating the globe three times. We discussed him joining the Royal Marines and passing out at top of his course. Um, and now we're now going to go and move on now to the Falklands. We've spoken about Northern Ireland. Obviously, we've jumped forward a little bit um, in what's happened. Um, do you mind telling us about your tour of the Falklands War? No, no. Um, probably, probably the main event in my career, I suppose. I think you've got to say that because it was, you know, a, a full-on war, although it was classified as a conflict mm. for various political reasons, I imagine. But um, for those who are actually down there, it felt pretty much like a war. Um, well, uh, uh, it began for us um, in the Far East. I was in uh, Yankee Company, a 4-5 commando, um, commanding 5 platoon, or 5 mm. troopers, we call them in the Royal Marines. Um, and we were actually in Hong Kong on the way back from a thing called Excise Curry Trail, where we'd spent three months in Brunei doing our jungle training. Fabulous training, by the way. And um, we were relaxing and we would have been getting probably quite drunk, except for the fact we'd lost our money because we'd misbehaved while we were in Brunei and they took that money off us. So <laughs> we, we were sat in barracks twiddling our fingers thinking this is a great opportunity wasted. Uh, but the Argentinians invading the Falkland Islands on the 2nd of April. So suddenly the run ashore in Hong Kong was um, sidelined and we all jumped onto a, an RAF VC-10 and flew back to Scotland. That's how it began for us. So... What was it like then going out? This is this was obviously a very high profile um, incident. Um, and obviously, as you said, it was life changing for you as well. Um, do you mind just going and talking what it was like when you got there? Because you were obviously in charge of people. Um, what was what? How are you feeling? What was it like? How was I feeling? Uh, excited, um, a little bit apprehensive. I think we were all apprehensive to be honest um prior to the first of may there was a lot of speculation as to whether or not we'd actually land and, and go ashore and, and start fighting people uh because there was a great deal of political toing and froing between um the uh, united states government uh, our own uk government under mrs thatcher and and the argentine junta there was a guy called Al Haig who was shuttling backwards and forwards trying to find some diplomatic solution. Um, of course, we were out of touch with the news, so we didn't really know what was going on. Um, but on the 1st of May, uh, we sank um, an Argentine cruiser called the General Belgrano with a loss of about 340-odd sailors, I think, were killed in that. Um, one of our submarines, HMS Conqueror, sank her. And that was the, um, the beginning. That was, if you like, the, the gloves are coming off. And uh, three days later, I think on the 4th of May, they responded by um, attacking HMS Sheffield with, with an Exocet missile, which I think killed 21 sailors. So that was that, that was the, you know, the, the, the point where we realised, yes, we will definitely be now going ashore and, and fighting our way through this. Mm. Um, preceding that was uh, just a, a great period of um, activity and, uh, again, excitement, to be perfectly honest. Um, the move back from the Far East and, and through Scotland and, and, and down to Ascension Island on the equator was very rapid. Yeah. In fact, so rapid because by the time Yankee Company arrived back in the UK, the rest of the brigade had already left and they were at sea. Mm. And that was an incredibly fast turnaround. 
yeah. literally days after the prime minister made her decision um you know we had elements of the task force already at sea yeah uh, quite a large part of the navy were already at sea off gibraltar they were conducting a naval exercise down there uh, and i suppose they just um went into jib for a run ashore topped up the beans and bullets and off they went yeah so um but we arrived in ascension island before pretty much any anybody else did and uh so we got a bit of we were already acclimatized having been in the far east anyway so that wasn't such a big issue yeah but to see the build-up of aircraft and ships every day more and more stuff was arriving it was it was quite awe-inspiring um but prior to the first as i say there was that kind of excitement and, and that sort of certain speculation but um you know you join up to see the world and by golly in in that first uh, tour of mine as a as oc5 troop we saw the world from mm. belfast to the far east to the south atlantic and yeah. all points in between so you know in a lot of ways I, I felt really grateful i thought wow i'm still in the unit they haven't drafted me out somebody else might have taken over yeah um but after that then it got serious yeah that, then it was case okay the training was already running at a high level there was no let up in the training at all yeah. but i think the, 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 the there was a certain tweaking of the knobs if you want to call it that a tightening up a little bit more if that was feasible yeah. suddenly you know we started to learn things like tap codes if you get captured this is how you communicate when you're in a prisoner of war camp oh wow uh, we, start, we started learning spanish phrases like uh, hands up and lie down you know manas arriba and things like that um we started getting lectures on survival in the falklands what you can eat and what you can't eat and what's likely to eat you and all this kind of stuff you know it suddenly ramped up quite rapidly and of course yeah. then we started to see maps of the ground and we could do map studies which is something every soldier really wants to get his teeth into so you know it, it, it suddenly it, it, it the, the tempo changed mm. and then there was that speculation period and then we heard this um the first rumor that was never unsubstantiated but was never proven either which was there was a warning order that we're going to go and attack stanley uh we're just going to fly straight and it's going to be a headborne assault like it was in suez uh we're just going to fly straight into the, the port and we're going to take him right on the nose yeah and by this time we knew that they had about fifteen thousand troops there you know well the whole of three commando brigade is about three thousand uh we had we had two parachute battalions attached to us as well two para and three para so that would beef the numbers up a bit but you know it still seemed a little bit long odds and um i've never read anything about that since so i i don't really know you know um much more about it than that but i think probably it was a genuine deception plan hmm. which in order to make it effective in case any one of us was communicating with the press or something you know they had to tell us about as well that was a sobering thought we, i remember discussing that with my contemporaries about jesus you know we're going to attack from a helicopter straight in cold yeah. uh anyway, in the event of course that wasn't what happened yeah and on the 21st of may our d-day we went ashore eventually on the other side of the island yeah um, as a crow flies about i don't know 60 70 miles away from where the main force was yeah. in a place called um san carlos water on, on the west side of east falkland island yeah. so you went and landed and you were a rifle troop commander then and yes. you were in charge of 32 men that's um, correct and you were operating in no man's land uh what was that like then operating in in no man's land that sounds you know we were speaking beforehand i know scotty and rupert was where we we're going and uh talking about about being so um uh paranoid i imagine being in no man's land is a whole new level of paranoia <laughs> um well i know we're we don't want to be spending all afternoon talking about this so i, yeah. I won't go into all great detail but that's, that's jumped right. a long way down the road yeah um Prior to that, there was a week in defence yeah. whilst we were getting ashore and everything was getting organised logistically. And of course, the war was going on. 
Um, that week was dominated mainly by the Argentine Air Force, and they managed mm. to sink about three of our ships in that time, I think. So there was a transition period from our point of view, uh, from what I call wartime or peacetime to wartime mentality, yeah. which, which I, I can now see is a very important part of our process. Um, and then we had the, the move from the west side of the island to the east side of the island, mm. uh, which as a crow flies, as I said, is about 50 or 60 miles possibly. Uh, but the route we took was much more than that. And it's what we call a yomp. Paris call it tabbing, Royal Marines call it yomping. Um, Difference is we're carrying a lot of weight, of course, whereas they're just wearing fighting order. But um, <laughs> it, it, it's uh, it's a very, very popular form of transport with the Ministry of Defence because it costs virtually nothing. And um, on this particular yomp, they made a profit because they didn't feed us for three days either. Oh. Um, but, it, it, you know, the, the yomping itself is a big subject. But, but put in very simple terms, you're carrying everything, including the kitchen sink. Um, you know, it's no exaggeration to say that there was nobody carrying less than 100 pounds, you know, sort of 50 kilograms, if you like. Um, and, and people like radio men, mortarmen, machine gunners carrying quite a lot more than that uh, over a really appalling ground. It was dreadful ground to walk over. There's no roads or tracks or anything. It was pure cross country. Um, and we did this, as I say, in pretty awful weather conditions, although weather is it's a factor, but it's not a big factor to you know us. Um, it, it, it affects operations, but it doesn't stop them. Mm. Um, and we got worn down, of course, by the uh, the lack of food as well. Um, but eventually, after all that, uh, we finally got to the mountains, if you like, to the office. You know, mm. the uh, the transport bits over, and we're now getting on with the job, if you like. Yeah. And uh, the unit went into a uh, defensive posture on what's called the reverse slope of a mountain. The reverse slope is the slope away from the enemy, in other words, the hidden bit. Mm. And uh, after we'd been there for a short while, the commanding officer summoned me and said, right, you're going forward, sure. And you're going to be operating on your own uh, on the forward slope of Mount Kent. And uh, he, he, go and see the operations officer. Here's a list of missions. Uh, load yourself up with as much ammo and food as you can carry and off you go. So that's how it, we got into um, no man's land, as it were. Yeah. Uh, we moved around on an appalling night. It was perfect cover for what we were doing. But it took the best part of 16 hours to move about 4,000 metres. And that's how bad the ground was and how bad the weather was and the weights we were carrying. We found this spot which was totally um, exposed. There was there was no cover whatsoever. So we had to sort of cam ourselves out amongst the rocks and just stay totally invisible during the daytime. Yeah. Uh, because we were actually now pretty much in, in almost in view of the enemy. Certainly there were any on Mount Longdon that could have seen us, mm. which was the objective that three power attacked. Um, but our objective, two sisters, was slightly out of sight. Um, the mission was to cause casualties and harass the enemy. That was a sort of generic mission. Uh, but underneath that, there was a whole range of recce missions to find out how do we get across the River Murrell? Um, have they got any minefields? Where are they? What kind of mines have they got? Um, have they got any barbed wire type entanglements? What are their defences, basically? And quite a long order of stuff that the commanding officer needed to know before he could make his plan of how we're going to attack the mountain. Um, so we spent a week in, uh, in, in that um, location carrying out those missions every night. Um, it's got to be done very methodically and carefully. Mm. It's mostly very boring stuff. Mm. A little bit frightening uh, because we had no anti-mine methods. We didn't have mine detectors or anything of that nature. Um, you just got to literally walk forward and hope you don't hit one, which is a <laughs> negative way of discovering where a minefield is. Yeah. Uh, pure bloody luck. Nobody did step on a mine at that point. So... Uh, we were able to at least say, well, in these areas, we're pretty sure there aren't mines, which is, mm. you know, negative result is as good as a positive one on a recce. Um, eventually, we got closer to the objective and started drawing fire, although I think it was prophylactic, sort of random. I don't think it was directed specifically at us. 
but it's very hard to say to be honest but there were shells landing and there was the occasional mm. burst of machine gun fire and that indicated where some of their defensive positions were um, but it was still a bit sketchy uh, and we were there for so long because the disaster that occurred at Bluff Cove when the Argentine Air Force attacked the landing ships Sir Galahad and Sir Tristram uh, which caused um, you know a lot of casualties for the Welsh Guards. Uh, I think 48 Welsh Guards were killed. Um, that that I would say throw a spanner in the works. That's a bit derogatory. It was a major setback. It took a little while for for five brigade, our sister brigade, if you like, who were on the southern flank. Bearing in mind we were in three commando brigade on the northern flank. Uh, it took them a little while to recover from that and position themselves for the uh, the main um, event. And that's what we were there to do. You know, the Port Stanley was surrounded by several rings of concentric mountains, if you like. If you look at a map, there are kind of like obvious rings. And uh, the outer ring was dominated on Mount Longdon, um, Two Sisters and Mount Harriet by the enemy. Yeah. And those three objectives uh, fell nicely for three para on the left flank into Longdon, four five commando on the central axis onto Two Sisters and 4-2 commander on the southern flank onto Mount Harriet. Mm. So that's how it all fell out. Um, the end of that week where we'd gathered as much intelligence as possible and during the daytime we'd brought down fire missions on Two Sisters and what was at first slightly unbelievable was the enemy's reaction to these things. I mean it's called Two Sisters because there's two very obvious peaks and there's a very nice sort of curved saddle between the two from where i was lying with the bombardier from 29 commando royal artillery bombardier nozza holt who mm. was the expert um and sometimes some of the lads as well because they all wanted to go at this uh from where we were landing uh, lying rather we, we were looking up at this saddle and it was completely skylined so although it was a fair distance off and i can't honestly remember how far but i would say possibly three to four thousand meters away um, you could still see people moving around on the saddle even at that range without the binos, yeah. you know. When we brought down the first fire mission, I think Noza did that, being the expert, of course, and unbelievably, it actually landed where we wanted it to land. But usually they don't, and you have to adjust fire to get them onto the target. Well, by some fluke, possibly, or maybe he's just very professional. Um, <laughs> you know, they actually landed. And you saw all these sort of, you heard the sort of um, shot out, I think it was, over the radio and they give you a, a time of flight something like i don't know 10 15 seconds i've forgotten what it was now and then you'd hear the sort of shells going overhead a sort of whiffling sound and then you'd hear the sort of very dull boom 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 of the the rounds actually going off of course the guns are you know up to seventeen thousand meters away then you'd see the, the, the splashes on the skyline and then you'd hear the crack 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 of the rounds and that was the sequence you know and as soon as you saw those splashes and thought wow bang on target you know that was how we occupied ourselves during that week yeah. Uh, towards the end of it they said look you're using up too much ammunition we need to save it for the battles now so no more fire missions so that stopped and then i was called back to uh, commando hq and um, a gazelle picked me up and flew me back and i was briefed to take a fighting patrol out and and this is this is really the thing you've joined up to do recce patrols are great i mean they're important you've got to gather the intelligence and all the rest of it but at the end of the day, you still got to do the job. You've got to kick mm. the enemy off the position. So the mission was to go on to the objective, two sisters, to find their mortar uh, positions and destroy them. And, and this was a precursor to the main brigade battles. You know, if we can take out their mortars, it's going to help us in the battle, you know, a, a day or so later. Um, to do this, I was given um, awful lot of firepower. I was given the whole of 2-9 commando, um, all their 105 um, light, light guns. Um, I was given a section of our own mortar troop, um, 81 millimeter mortars, 
Uh, I was given four men from Recce Troop to act as scouts. And I was given four men from 5-9 Commando, independent commando, Royal Engineers. And their job was to actually destroy the mortars and the ammunition. So uh, I think there were about 42 blokes under command in total. Oh, wow. At that point, was the biggest thing I'd ever had, you know. And even now, um, it still represents for me that the most potent firepower I ever had in my career. Yeah. Even when I was looking after nuclear weapons, um, you know, there was very little likelihood of me actually firing those weapons. So I can't claim that I had, you know, awesome firepower <laughs> there. But um, so that was that was the mission. And that was what I had. It was a full day of operate of uh, planning and, and preparation, you know, what we call battle procedure. Um, and we just finished the uh, night rehearsals. It was just getting dark. I, I did them slightly early because we needed all of the darkness to do this. Mm. We were going a long way behind the enemy and coming back in from the rear. To, to achieve surprise, of course. And uh, we had 16 hours of darkness. You know, they were going into wintertime when it's almost permanently dark. Mm. And uh, we, we needed all that time. And we were just about to go when this uh, light helicopter flew up to me and uh, the pilot just gave me a piece of paper and vanished. And it said on it, beware of counterattack from 601 Commando. This, this is Argentine Special Forces uh, who are thought to be in the area. C carry on with the task. Um, don't cut the phone lines to Stanley. So I briefed the lads and off we went. Um, we'd been going about an hour towards the first, what we call RV rendezvous point. And this was the end of a very prominent stone run. We'd been in the, you know, on the ground for a week, so we knew the place like the back of our hands. Uh, and it was pitch dark on this particular night. Although we had almost a full moon, there was 10 tenths cloud cover. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face. Um, we only had one night viewing device, a thing called an IWS. And uh, the, the, the recce sergeant, who was our lead scout, carried that so the rest of us are just using the mark one eyeball so visibility was almost nil anyway we're, we're, we're patrolling in single file to start with because of the nature of the ground and the time factor uh, when suddenly the man in front of me stopped and uh, you know all, all the basic field craft we'd been practicing for months and in many cases years beforehand so mm. everything happens naturally there's no talking whatsoever um, we hit the deck and then the, the hand signal came back summoning me to the front so i crawled up to the lead scout uh, who was about uh, four blokes in front of me um he handed his weapon over and he just pointed and i looked through the site and i could see this blob and because uh, this relied on starlight and there was no stars you know it's very indistinct you're looking at a, basically a green sort of circle but within that i could see there was something and then i could see the edges of it moving and then i realized it was a group of people all huddled together um Trying to estimate how far away it was wasn't easy. I, I, I guessed it was a couple hundred meters at the most. And then a light came on, which which actually killed the night device, but was proof, you know, a confirmation these are people, mm. not a rock or something. Um, and the light sort of, I thought, well, they're obviously looking at a map or something like that, you know, not something that um, you'd expect to see normally at nighttime. So I crawled back to my location and got my radio operator on the line. He was right next to me. Uh, to uh, go back to zero, our headquarters, just confirm that there's nobody from our neighbour, three para on the ground, because we were right on the border with them. Um, I then whispered into my own radio, which was talking to my section commanders, the three of them. So I, I briefed them what we were seeing and warned them off this could be a hasty ambush. Um, I got uh, the mortar fire controller who was next to me to then confirm with the mortar section that they were ready to support us. And then finally the bombardier to go back to 2-9 commander and check the guns are ready to unmasked is the term, uh, are ready to support us as well in case we need them. So a lot of this sort of frantic whispering was going mm. on, aware of the fact that this could be this 601 commando. 
what yeah. I did know was there was nobody else out on the ground tonight. You know, I mean, it's absolutely paramount that you've got to know what's going on in your area. Uh, so this all took place over a very short space of time. And by that time, the sergeant had crawled back to me and handed the weapon over and pointed and I looked through it and they were moving. Yeah. And they were now moving towards us. And and by this time, I was getting the replies coming back from zero, you know, our headquarters, uh, no three power, nobody on the ground. Um, the mortar section is uh, about, you know, able to support you. I remember asking, are you on high or low ground? The answer came back on high ground. Yeah. Okay, that's where they're supposed to be. Um, and the guns are ready if you need them. So uh, by this time, I could actually hear people in front of me. Uh, and they were, it was a rock run and it was horrible ground and they were having a real problem getting over it. You could hear the boots scraping and noise obviously couldn't be avoided, to be honest. Um, and the drill was very simple. Once the enemy force was in the arcs and we mm. didn't have any laid out arcs at this point, obviously it's a hasty ambush. It's not like a, a planned ambush. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, once it's obvious to the guy who can see, which is this guy with the night sight, he would tap me on the shoulder. And I would initiate the ambush by firing a Shamuli, which is a, um, a rocket type flare, like a firework, really. Mm. Uh, and I think that was the next thing that happened. Um, it, I could actually hear him crossing us. And I, also, I could see, or I had seen rather, when I was looking through the site, that they weren't moving on a parallel bearing. Because one of the thoughts that ran through my mind is, let them go. You know, that, that somebody else can deal with this, because this is not what I'm here to do. We, we've got to get up to the mountain and find these mortars. Um, but then I thought, no, you know, that have brought us here and they've already killed a lot of our blokes. You know, that's, this is our job. We're going we're mm. to kill them. But then I realized they weren't moving on a parallel bearing. They were actually on a converging bearing. The front man was probably going to step on the rear man of my troop. And that's where surprise would be lost and God knows what's going to happen after that. So I think that was the, you know, the final element in my thinking that you, you've got to initiate this ambush. Because I was looking for ways not to do it. I mean, it's the most unnatural thing in the world, you know, to pull a trigger in cold blood on somebody unless you happen to be some sort of psychopath. So um, and this all took place in a matter of 20, 30 seconds, maybe a minute. Yeah. I mean, the time's really affected by these events. You know, it's a strange experience time. Uh, and so I got the tap on the shoulder and I shut my eyes and I fired off the Shamuli and off it went. And as soon as it, it, it initiated... Uh, I knew I'd done the wrong thing because there's a, about a two second pause while there's rockets climbing before the light actually comes on. And, uh, uh, you know, the professional soldier's drill is, is a reaction is to hit the ground immediately if he's that close to it. Uh, if you're a long way away, you freeze and you go down with the shadows, two different reactions, basically. So when this thing did pop, to my amazement, there was 21 figure 11 targets frozen right in front of me. I think the shock effect of that one thing caused them all. That's an image I've got. That doesn't mean to say that's exactly what happened because mm. this is 40 years ago. But anyway, that's how I remember a sort of frozen tableau and uh, and down went the fire immediately. Um, I, I put you, I had a, a jacket full of these things, so I, I kept putting them up to keep the killing ground uh, lit. Of course, they all vanished immediately. They hit the deck and so on. And uh, I've got no visual memory at all of what happened after that. Um, I remember the feeling of elation because uh, what, as soon as we started hearing screaming, I we've hit targets, mm. then the, you know, there is a savage element to this, but there's also a massive sense of relief because the great fear is that, you know, once you've initiated, you've given yourself away. You could hide here, nobody know you're here, and we could save ourselves the real element of danger, you know. But um, so that was a great feeling, um, but it's a weird feeling. And when you 
when you talk about it 40 years later, it even seems strange to say it, to be honest. Mm. I suppose that shows you how far I've moved from that, that mentality at that time. But, you know, we, we were totally in the groove. We, we were now two-dimensional soldiers. You know, it's too melodramatic to call us killers, but let's not forget what we're there to do, that this is our function. Yeah. And uh, the, you know, I don't want to miss it up. This is a simple fact of life. So uh, there was a great feeling in my head. But then, because there was nothing coming back, I st and this all happened in a very short space of time, I started worrying about why is there no reaction? Hmm. And the recce sergeant shouted in my ear because the noise obviously was incredible. Yeah. You know, with three GPMGs, three LMGs, SLRs, recce had armor lights. We were all firing away. Um, he shouted in my ear, there's something wrong here. And I was thinking the same thing. And I was about to get on the radio to the rear section commander. We were lying in, in one line, single file as it were. And, and say to him, right, give us cover. We'll peel off behind you. When he came on the net and said to me, if you want to move back, I'll cover you. And, and that for me, that still today can bring tears to my eyes because that was the moment when my troop was telepathic. You know, this was my weapon wasn't the SLR I was carrying in my hands. My weapon was the troop, hmm. the 42 blokes under my command. And if you if you end up firing, which I did do um, unprofessionally and a bit cowboyish, to be honest. But um, if you end up firing, you know, it's either gone drastically wrong or you've misunderstood your role. But bottom line is um, to have a section commander read my mind was just, you know, wow, it doesn't get more professional than that. But at that point, or very close to it, the last Shamuli fizzled out, it all went dark, and so the firing stopped. And then this voice shouted out from the darkness, stop firing, we're 5-6 Bravo. And that was the call sign of the mortar section. So that was the moment where my life changed completely. Um, mm. I can put it down to a precise moment in time. Uh, and I call it the sort of BC and AD sort of phases, the BC before crisis, yeah. the AD being after damage, you know, and apologies to any committed Christians. But um, that's how I see it. Life, life has got two distinct halves. So that, that was the, uh, that's what actually happened. And that changed everything, of course. So um, the rest of the night was spent dealing with this, um, the recovery element. There was a lot of risk here. Uh, we were under two enemy positions. Um, one of our own positions was trying to bring fire down us because they thought they were being attacked. So we nearly had a double blue on blue. Um, but fortunately, cool minds back in the command post managed to disentangle the uh, confusion. Um, and although I was given an order to carry on with the mission once we'd done everything we needed to do, which was basically secure the location, deal with the casualties, mm. that took a long time because those that hadn't been killed um, needed to be backloaded. We didn't have the Kazivak that we're used to today. You know, today they've got the Chinook helicopter and what they call the MERT. You know, it's a fantastic uh, facility, very, very brave doctors and nurses that fly into the middle of a battlefield under fire and, and extract wounded soldiers and, and obviously the dead as well. Uh, we didn't have anything in those days like that. It was just not physically possible. So um, we had to use a, a bandwagon, which is a, a, a very slow tracked vehicle, which took a long time to navigate up to where we were and then to take the lads back. Hmm. But um, the damage we'd done was we'd killed four of them and three were dead by the time I got to see them. And the fourth one, the engineers tried to save his life. They did a fantastic job, those lads in 5-9 Commando. They didn't get to, you know, blow up their mortar tubes, which is what they were prepared to do. Instead, they ended up trying to save lives. Mm. But they also saved the lives of three other men as well. So there were seven casualties in all. Um, and that was that was the, the, the there was the whole of that night was taken up with dealing with all that stuff. Um, 
I was flying back to the unit just after stand down at first light, uh, you know, a few hours later uh, to be debriefed. And it was patently obvious that we'd done the job. <sighs> you can't be too professional, but it felt like it at the time. Um, you know, we'd done a very good job there. And unfortunately, um, the victims, if you like, had been the victims of circumstance. Mm. They weren't unprofessional lads. And for a long time, I thought they were lost. Um, interestingly, I was on a podcast last September, I think it was, and one of the lads involved in that got in touch with me and said, you've got your facts wrong. And I said, how do you mean? He said, well, we weren't lost. And he started explaining to me what actually happened. And, and it was a total revelation to me. Uh, there was something that transpired that was a new development. So in fairness to them, um, they were not lost. They were actually doing the job exactly right. Mm. But circumstances didn't present themselves like that. And I think, you know, had I not been warned that there was an enemy force in the area, then, you know, I would not have been so inclined to think that this group in front of me was the enemy. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that, that's the way these things always happen. You know, there's always one or two small events, little chinks in the armor, if you like, or links. Mm. Uh, and they sort of chain link one to another. And before you know what's what, it's out of control. Mm. And, and you can't stop it, even though you're not able to to anticipate it. Yeah. Um, before I go on to the, the emotional side, does that generate any questions for you at all? Rupert, Scotty, do you have any questions at all that you'd like to ask? <clears throat> As I said, I've, I've listened to Andy's story a few times, and every time I do listen to it, it still hits me in the same way. It's um, We can't really imagine the sort of um, feelings you must have had, Andy. And then going on then to your as you said that incident changed your life forever um and you know how that affected you um and the decisions then you kind of went on to and make i just think it's amazing that you can recall that incident and thank you for sharing with us that um incident because it's never easy to go over uh the stuff like that but it's um it's brutally important that we can reflect in a way and we can then, you know, remember the everybody involved in any sort of conflict um, is affected. And yeah, Andy, you know me, you know me, mate. It's, um, yeah, it's thanks very much for sharing that. And it's, I, I, I it's, it's absolutely brutal conflict. And you've actually painted a, a picture there of how difficult and how hard and how, you know, you've got to be on. 100% on your game all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for that, Scotty. Um, oh, Rupert, did you want to add a, a, add a question? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, a very an awful situation to suddenly find yourself in for all the right reasons, really. Um, and, you know, in the darkness and confusion, the fog of war, as they often call it, you know, it, it, it seems unavoidable. But as a, a leader in that situation, how, how did you deal with your guys? Because they must have been, you know, pretty, you know, reacting in much the same way that you did. That's, that's a good question. Um, once once we identified the uh, the casualties, my troop sergeant was up there with me. It, we, we almost went non-tack. I remember as soon as um, that very brave person who not only shouted out, you know, we're five, six, bravo, but then got up. Uh, that's right. The next thing that happened was that somebody shouted out, give us some names. 
and some names were shouted back, which I didn't recognise, but somebody else did. And then some more names came back. And because I'd been a Marine in that company, in support company, prior to becoming an officer, I recognised names. I then knew, undoubtedly, this is definitely, you know, our mortar section. Then that guy actually got up and walked forward to identify himself. Now, that was a really brave act. Um, anyway, he, once that was done, then I remember hearing lots of angry voices in the troop, yeah. genuine anger and shock. Anyway, I went forward with, with uh, my troop sergeant. And, uh, and as I say, we started looking at the casualties and all the rest of it. And he whispered in my ear, the troop needs you now more, sir, than ever before. And he must have been reading my mind because my I remember thinking, all I want to do is set a bearing of north on the compass. And just, I don't want any more to do with this. I'm just leaving. I'm gone. And of course, it was a stupid thought, but and, and naturally I wasn't going to actually carry it out. But he must have recognized something in my thinking or something. And and, and I've always, you know, Scotty's heard me say this at, uh, at Shrivenham. You know, th that's the perfect example of the importance of the rank structure that the British Armed Forces enjoys. And it's absolute corroboration for the um, the old um, um, edict that the science messes the backbone of the core because it's true um, the senior NCOs are the backbone of any organization and, uh, and at that particular point even though with my experience and age and all the rest of it I didn't feel as if I needed Sergeant Mill to hold my hand at that particular moment in time he got it exactly right so my personal reactions were all over the place obviously um, I couldn't uh, there was a sense of disbelief complete disbelief I couldn't believe the information my ears was giving me and that was the feeling of moving from one end of the universe to the other in, in a flash. Um, and then, of course, the horror, uh, overwhelmed by the feeling of, of failure and shame. So all this stuff started coming in like huge waves in, in, in my emotions. Um, but at the same time, you know, there was a practical issue that had to be dealt with here. This is a classic command appointment, really. Uh, and the CEO came on the radio and, and gave me simple instructions. I just told him what had happened. And he said, right, OK, well, first of all, secure the area. Uh, next thing, um, see if you can find any equipment that might have been dropped because we're going to need it tomorrow night and things of that nature, you know. So I, I was guided and supported and helped and that, that was it was extremely useful at the time. Um, as for the lads, well, they were just sitting there with nothing to do, but now getting cold, uh, lying there, you know, dress for a patrol. You know, when you go out patrol, there's always that dilemma. Do you put on too much clothing or not enough? And uh, if you put on too much, you sweat your nuts off and the cam cream runs and you feel horrible. If you don't put enough on, you're freezing. Um, and so you can never get that right, to be honest. So basically, if you're going to go into a fighting patrol, you, you think you're going to be moving pretty much consistently. Well, that didn't happen. We stopped. And so although hypothermia wasn't an issue and it wasn't raining, it was very cold. You know, nonetheless, that was another factor. Um, I didn't actually hear anything from the lads personally. When we got back to the harbour, because I, I, I disobeyed the order to carry on. And once we repatriated the dead and the bodies and we'd done a search for kit, which I don't think we found anything, we then went straight back to the harbour. And I said to Sergeant Mill, and I said, right, um, close the sentries down, which may seem like an incredible order, but I don't want anybody sitting in the dark fiddling with his safety catch with all this stuff going on in through his mind. Yeah. Bearing in mind, we were always made ready. We always had one up the spout. Um, and then I turned in. As I said before, I, to many people, I have no idea if that's what actually happened. I'm certain Sartre Milne would have done the right thing. But uh, that, that was uppermost in my mind, is what effect has this had on the lads? When I came back from the debrief, where all I uh, experienced there was uh, sympathy. Sympathy and understanding. People seeing this is just a great tragedy, you know. 
there's there's no point uh, apportioning blame because there's no blame to be apportioned. It's just a set of circumstances which happens in every conflict, unfortunately. So, uh, and I was ordered, you know, get back up the line because um, you'll be getting your orders coming through shortly. We're attacking tonight. Mm. So the, 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 the blue on blue was forgotten about immediately. Now, when I got back up to the uh, location, Sergeant Milne said to me, how did it go? And so I explained to him, you know, I said, was, you know, this is the situation. Um, there's nothing we've got to worry or reproach ourselves for. You know, we haven't done anything particularly wrong here. Um, it's just very tragic. And uh, OK, so what's happening? So warning order, you know, um, my radio operator, Marine Robson. OK, I want you to make a model of two sisters and this, you know, and I'm going to start writing my orders when I get them. And, and the battle procedure began. And later on that afternoon, um, two thirds of the unit arrived in my location, which felt a bit strange. You know, we've been covert for a week and now there's 450 odd blokes milling around in the daylight. Uh, but it became the unit assembly area. And that's where all the, the orders were given at, at the various levels through the various companies and troops. So a lot of activity going on. Um, and then we were straight into the battle. Uh, the battle lasted through to some time after first light the following morning, so pretty much all night. Um, and then we were under shell fire for about a day while the Scots Guards then put in their attack on Tumbledown. Um, and then the day after that, we were ordered to attack Sapper Hill. And it was on the way in to attack Sapper Hill that the enemy surrendered, and that was it. It was all over and done with. Uh, we spent two nights living out still in the field in atrocious weather. The, the Antarctica winter had finally come in and uh, it was blizzards, conditions, deep snow and you know, sub-zero temperatures. Uh, and then we were called into Stanley and we were into the last phase of the war, really. So on a landing ship in Stanley Harbour, about a week after we got into Stanley, we were there for about two to three weeks in the total before we started sailing back to uh, the UK. Um, we had a, um, a service in the tank deck of a landing ship. I think it was the uh, Percival. And the company commander said a few words and Sergeant Major read out a few names. Uh, the commander had lost, I think, 13, if I remember correctly, in total. Uh, in our company, we'd lost two guys uh, in the battle. There were four killed in the Battle of Two Sisters. Two of them were in Yankee Company. Uh, and that was it. I don't remember a single tear. I don't remember any signs of emotion. There was no wreath laying or anything of that nature. We just stood around in the tank. That We didn't even fall in in ranks or anything like that. It was just a, a group of people, a few words, and that was it. Um, sailing back up through the South Atlantic, and I do remember a lot of tears and hugging and, and you know, all sorts of comments. Um, and that seemed to be um, the only emotional outlet that I remember. But apart from that, that was it. There was never any discussion about anything after that. So the, the war stopped on the day they surrendered and minimal reference to it afterwards until shortly after that I left the unit. And, uh, and that was it. It was done and dusted in the past. Yeah. Um, fast forward a number of years, and yes, we've lost two guys, one to a heart attack, one just before Christmas, uh, to cancer that was definitely generated by PTSD, um, and about half the troop I've not been able to contact. Um, so I've got no doubt there are people not just like me, you know, similarly mm. suffering, but um, there's a significant number of people suffering from all conflicts who, for whatever reason, aren't able to actually deal with it in a sort of proactive manner, you know, and they just tough it out. Mm. That's a real sad thing. So that's sort of a long winded answer to your question, but that, that, yeah. that was the effect on the guys, basically. Yeah. I just, when did, um, when did you first start to notice the symptoms that you would later know were, was PTSD? When did, 
that start the when did that start to take effect well it's almost easier to answer this question by going backwards actually because i'd never heard the term ptsd mm. until 2008 oh wow and that was because i'd finally got a grip of myself and said right you know you, you can't live in what i call the dream bubble in isolation on this lovely old classic yacht sailing around wherever you want to go it sounds like the life of a lotus eater actually it was a very tough existence particularly for my wife because we had no money i was living on a pension so we couldn't go into marinas we couldn't do this we couldn't do that we could never leave the boat because of security elements you know um so it wasn't the idyllic life you'd want but it was isolation which is what i needed yeah um so in 2008 a, an old friend of mine uh, um, we did a course down in pool together um he got his own security company going in uh, singapore and he offered me a job sitting on a barge back where we began in a place called labuan labuan is a small island off the coast of brunei in the south china sea and at the end of our jungle training i took a bunch of lads there for a bit of r and r for a week and we just basically sat on the beach eating coconuts and drinking beer and uh, and and here i was you know 2008 whatever the math is i can't do it off the top of my head years later back mm -hmm. on this same island guarding a barge yeah. And and it was a very good job for me because I was on my own. I was working with one other guy and we just spelled each other. So I never really saw him. Um, I actually earned a good wage, and uh, which I didn't tell anybody about. And with that money, once I'd sorted out the huge MasterCard debt, which I'd built up, um, I was unable to buy myself a computer. Unfortunately, being Malay, the instructions were in Malay. So I had to learn Malay before I could actually switch to computer. <laughs> but... Um, I, I managed to well i learned how the word for power and uh, and shortly after that i got into this thing called googling and it wasn't long after that after I, um i saw this phrase ptsd and then i realized good god that's me so i was never diagnosed by a competent authority i was too ashamed and too frightened to go sick so that, that's the end if you like of the situation where the reality finally dawned on me but to go back to the beginning um the first phase was i probably call it denial so um telling my wife what had happened was difficult enough and of course she had no idea how to deal with this so there was no comment other than the fact she was frightened now of going shopping in case she was in a supermarket or whatever in Arbroath, and the widow of somebody i'd killed happened to be in this queue with her that kind of situation there had been white feathers wanging about in in our broth while we were down south sent to people left behind on rear party you know and these are this is the unpleasant face of war isn't it the, the human nature being what it is it doesn't change much over the centuries to be honest so she had a valid fear there but we never talked about it um telling my parents near oakhampton a short while afterwards um similar reaction that they weren't expecting to hear this you know we come back to a hero's welcome if you just google the camera coming into southampton unbelievable scenes which we didn't enjoy we we, we missed all that and i remember feeling torn on the one hand i felt we'd been seen off i'd love to have been there on the other hand i was so glad we weren't i, I could have happily gone around in circles in the south atlantic for months mm. just didn't want to come back and face anybody um so anyway mum and dad of course same sort of pregnant horrible silence and then mum said oh well let's go down the pub so we walked down the village the road to the village pub and um oh blow me there's bloody bunting out there's flags there's people smiling and wanting to shake your hand and all this stuff you know it felt dreadful anyway i walked in there and this guy came up to me with a pint and he put it down he sat down opposite me at this table and he looked straight into my eyes and he said so what's it like to kill somebody oh and and what happened was it felt like it felt like sort of 
steel doors came inside my brain just dropped down you know yeah. there was no emotional reaction whatsoever i just got up and, and walked out yeah and and that was it so i think that was a denial phase um i went to camacho which was looking after britain's nuclear assets and they hadn't gone south so the, the falklands was a taboo subject that suited me perfectly you know and my second daughter was born and this time i was able to go to the birth um, so life was hunky-dory, you know, we moved out to a little croft, a little bothy out in the country from away from the camp uh, And it was all sweet and, and light and everything else and then I volunteered to go down to pool to do the SC3s course and um, After eight months of that I was told my services are no longer required and that triggered off the first real rage attack and uh, Whether it was justified or not is debatable. But anyway, the bottom line is I wasn't suitable and um, I, I really had to fight hard to control myself i nearly lost the plot completely there so that was the first indication i suppose but i you know i'd had a rage attack before years ago when i was a, a trawlerman um i got a lot of grief on my first trip from a bloke for three months i was stuck in the arctic with this guy and and, and i flashed when we got back to hull and we paid off and uh, the, the 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 situation reversed itself and and i beat the shit out of this bloke and it felt bloody good and it was the first time in my life i was 18 then and all the experiences i had of all the corporal punishment at schools and particularly the bullying and even two paedophiles all of that had built up i totally unaware of this of course i was doing no analysis at that stage this is all very recent in the last say two to three decades i've done this kind of thinking uh, but it was uh, that's what happened so um that was the second time and i think that marked the beginning of the next phase so you could say the denial phase kind of ended around about that period and i was now training recruits down at limston and i was doing bizarre things um the most obvious thing was running, stupid running, you know, go out for a run in the evening, say I'll be back shortly and running 20 miles and coming back wrecked because I wasn't a marathon runner and I wasn't prepared for it. I wasn't even hydrating, you know, with stupid things. That was self-harming. I can see it clearly now. Um, the more bizarre self-harming was shooting rabbits. Um, I'd go for a run with a Bergen. I had this um, weapon you could strip down. It was it was a legal weapon, I, a legitimate owner. Um, and I'd stalk into some place on Woodbury Common and lie there and wait for a rabbit to turn up and shoot it. And um, it, it was years before I understood what that was about. And that was definitely self-harming because what I was trying to do was, was hate myself for what had happened. I'm not saying that there should have been some sort of le legal consequences to what happened down south because that would have been inappropriate too. Although in today's current climate, I'm certain that would have happened. Something would have happened anyway. But... Um, you just can't kill four people and walk away from it, no matter what the circumstances. It doesn't matter who was to blame, nobody was to blame. Um, but I couldn't live with that. So I think that was a good example. Um, I was doing other self-harming things, which are, are too awkward to talk about. But mm. looking back now, that was a strange period. And, and I was also on the face of it. I, I think now this is the first example of the split personality sort of thing. I think, you know, when you're people like us who are very proud of who we are, of everything you know from her majesty the queen down to to me and everything in between yeah uh, that's a huge that's a huge weight hmm. that you just can't walk away from you know it's an obligation or responsibility whatever you call it um and i couldn't find ways around that you know and so so i think my personality was developing two two channels so the outward face the face that everybody could see including my wife although i think she could see something much more darker underneath um I was actually paradoxically becoming the man they all want to see. This is where my nickname Shagger Shaw came from. Uh, it's got nothing to do with the things that people think it might be, uh, if only. Um, it was more to do with the fact I used to shag the troops out because I was doing a rehabilitation job and a thing called Hunter Troop. 
and and we used to do ridiculously physically demanding things to get them back into training. It worked. It might not have been the most scientifically clever things to do, but mm. it did work. But the, the the part of the drive behind it was this masochistic element. Um, so yeah, that was a very awkward period where I could see it myself, but I was not in the slightest bit interested in in doing anything about it. I just carried on in that direction. Yeah. Uh, I don't know because we never talked about it, but my sex life started going pretty much downhill, and I think probably, probably I might have been doing things in my sleep. I never heard about it from my wife, so I'm assuming nothing actually happened. Mm. But some years later, when I was training officers, um, we were on Salisbury Plain doing a defence exercise, and no, sorry, I was training senior NCOs when I was working for the army at Brecon. That's right, and we were doing this defence exercise. And uh, I woke up in the middle of the night with, with my groin on fire. We were in an old abandoned farm, you know, there's, they're just very basic shell buildings. There's no windows and doors and things like that. It's just concrete. It's very cold, but at least you've got a roof. And I was lying in a camp bed in a sleeping bag and, and suddenly my groin was on fire. And when my eyes focused, I could see this face in front of me with this bloke's eyes staring at me and my hands were around his throat. And what had happened was there was... Um, some guy had come to give me a shake to go and listen to one of the students giving a set of orders in the middle of the night. And very thoughtfully, he'd brought a, a mug of coffee for me. And he must have just tapped me, and I just grabbed him around the throat in my sleep. And it was the coffee that was setting fire to my groin. Oh. And it took two, two members of staff to pull my hands off him. And after that, I, I got shaken with somebody throwing a, a, an entrenching tool at me or poking me with a brush. <laughs> Nobody came close to me after that. Yeah, we, we all laughed about it. And even I thought it was kind of slightly amusing. But, you know, much, much later when I started reading about PTSD and the symptoms, that happened to me. Mm. And I wonder if that happened between me and my wife, because I've now helped a number of people. And I can reel a list of names off the top of my head right now. People who have had exactly that and much worse. Um, and even people I've taken on the experience. And one night, the hotel we were using in France, the, the, the manager very thoughtfully put my guest in the room next to me. And the wall was very thin and, and his pillow was probably no more than about 12 inches from my pillow. And every bloody night in the middle of the night, there'd be a massive bang on the wall behind me. That would frighten the hell out of me. Then I'd hear a thump as he's fallen out of bed. Then I'd fall out of bed. Then I'd go around and check him. And every night he was doing that, you know. So the, the whole thing about attitude and sleep is, is a big part of this. Mm -hmm. And I was starting to become aware of it, I suppose. Um, I was then becoming more rebellious. Uh, I was sent on the junior staff course, and I just did the opposite to everybody else. It was stupid. I got in with a bunch of lads who are hard drinkers. Uh, I don't want to malign any part of the United mm. Kingdom, but there are certain parts of Britain which are renowned for strong drinkers. And, uh, <laughs> I, I found myself with them, um, you know, not, not doing the work that should have been done. At the very end of it, the commandant said to me, think you're more qualified for charging things than actually writing detailed staff plans, you know. Um, I'm not sure if you can actually fail that course, um, but you certainly get a report written which pretty much damages your career. And I'm yeah. sure that's where my career was probably decided at that point, you know. So, um, but by then I was past caring and I really wasn't thinking in terms of career or family or anything else. And I was becoming much more distant from my family. Um, not so much my two daughters because I was not often home. So in a sense, they probably didn't see a lot of difference. Um, but my, my parents and my brother who was in the army and my two sisters hardly had anything to do with them at all. And this caused my mother's cancer to come back. She'd had it before when she was younger, um, when they took me out the first boarding school because of the paedophile headmaster and all that stress, you know, generated uh, cancer. She had a mastectomy. 
And so now this is happening. She's having another one. So there's a, another addition to the guilt element of PTSD, which is always a complex set of conditions in its own right. Um, so, you know, I, I, the, the distancing thing was becoming easier and easier to do. The ability to hold a conversation was getting less and less. Um, I couldn't go shopping, hated supermarkets, hated crowds, hated driving. Um, was probably the original guy that invented the phrase road rage. Not that I actually remember getting out of the car and attacking anybody. I never went quite that far. But what I would do is drive into town and then go round the roundabout and drive out again. And she'd look at me and say, where are we going? We're supposed to be going shopping. I said, and I wouldn't explain to her. What I was doing was looking at the VRNs of the vehicles behind me, the vehicle you know, um, registration number, the, the, the number plate. I was checking to see who was following me. And of course, nobody was following me. But I had all these VRNs in my head, you know, it was a blue Mercedes or it was a green BMW or whatever that was. And this, the, the ability, the, the skill came from the Northern Ireland experiences, but I was now applying it in Exmouth. <laughs> Balmy, isn't it? And the same thing with looking in shop windows to check the reflection of who's behind you. She couldn't understand any of this and I couldn't explain it. So she just knew I was getting stranger and stranger and stranger. And we had a few real bust ups. Uh, and there was one big public one on the bus one day. And... Um, so the marriage was getting to that point where we now almost can't talk about anything. And, and, and it's so easy just to bring the shutters down and say nothing and just go for another run, put the trainers on, another 20 mile or out over bloody East Devon, come back wrecked. Hopefully she's in bed by the time I get back. You know, that kind of attitude. It was very bad, but uh, I don't think I even acknowledged it. And then I made reference to that tour of 88 where I was pretty much on the edge there and I was making very crass decisions which you know you might justify from a soldier's point of view in private conversation but publicly i'd never talk about um and and i think that was an example of where i was on the edge of losing the plot and even the unit was starting to recognize it and that paradoxically is where i got the general officer commanding's commendation for the work i did there because a lot of things i did there which obviously i don't want to talk about publicly but mm. um because of my age and experience i was far too old actually to be a multiple commander i should have been much higher at this point um, but nonetheless, that's what I was doing. Uh, so I was given a bit of leeway and I was doing a few things to try and thwart the enemy and was pretty good at it. So uh, where did we go from there? Oh, well, it all predictably ended when um, I came back from that particular tour on R&R &R and found my wife was having an affair. And that was her way of breaking up the marriage. She couldn't find any other way of dealing with it. And she also had some issues of her own, of course, which she'd alluded to years ago when we were first uh, courting, but she wasn't prepared to talk about and, and serious issues and uh, so she was trying to struggle with that stuff as well so you know the, the gap just got bigger and bigger and bigger to the point where there was just no connection anymore unfortunately um, yeah. and finally yeah. three Fridays after I took up my new post in Brecon as OC2 platoon in the senior division I went down to Exmouth for the weekend and I flipped and that was it I nearly took her over the edge very nearly yeah and uh walked out of the house the kids screaming their heads off and got in the car and drove up to a lonely place on the common and decided to kill myself um obviously i didn't but i spent a whole night rationalizing on that and a couple of occasions when it suddenly seemed to be the exactly the right thing to do it was a lot more attractive death than another day of this mm. and uh, i couldn't see any way out of it but there were little voices that sort of brought me to my senses if you like and a gradual acceptance well funny enough you've been here before 
and going back to those days in the boarding school when I ran away. I'm quite good at running away, actually. <laughs> I've had a lot of experience at it. Uh, although, to be honest, I, I haven't learned a great deal. Even when I did the escape invasion stuff, I still got caught. But, um, no, seriously speaking, um, you know, it was a kind of fatalistic oh, acceptance of this is the way it is. You know, suicide is not the option. Mm. It might seem attractive. And I think nobody knows how close they are to that. It's impossible to say, and I don't want to sort of dramatize it or, or romanticize in any way, mm. but um, that was the second lowest point in my life. And the difference between that and the night of the blue on blue is that on the first occasion, I had a, a really important job. It still needed somebody to make decisions and give commands and what have you. Um, and I had a structure around me, you know, my troop sergeant particularly, as well as the corporals, of course, and the lads. Uh, but on this occasion, there was nothing. There was nothing yeah. to keep me anymore. So that, that's why it was probably... A more significant low point. Uh, low point's not the right word. It was the very bottom. It was the absolute pits. Yeah. But from that point onwards, it was you know there's nowhere left to go but up again. And it's so easy to say these rather trite positive psychology phrases, but when you've been there, um, there isn't there isn't there aren't words to to describe this stuff. Mm. You can't even somebody who considers himself a wordsmith like me, uh, I can't find adjectives to describe the, the feelings and the emotions at the time. And I've got to be fair about this as well. It is quite a long time ago, and as Scotty knows, I've done a lot of talking about this, which is a major part of my recovery. But in addition to that, your actual memory and your feelings diminish as well. Uh, and this is what it's meant by the phrase, you know, time is a great healer. Yeah. So uh, to be honest, I, I couldn't even describe that anyway accurately because, you know, I have forgotten some of it or, or just lost it in the mist of time. Hmm. Um, but that was the turnaround point, and that was 89. So that was um, seven years after the event. Yeah. But I think all those experiences in Ireland as well, albeit at the time didn't generate PTSD or anything remotely like that, it suddenly all became part of the mixture. And, and it went right back to childhood. It went back to those early days. My grandmother died on me, literally, uh, when I was five years old. We were walking back to her house um, after a, a, a trip into Wolverhampton to watch my mum do a flower arranging uh, display and, uh, and she collapsed. She had a heart attack and died. Now, at the age of five, you don't really understand all these things. So apart from running home to get my granddad and all that stuff, you know, it didn't really have an impact. But looking back now, I think about all the deaths and, and that stuff I've experienced in my life. There's been an awful lot of them. It all adds up so that when you get that critical moment, when there's a sort of final straw situation and the blue on blue was way more than the final straw, then suddenly pff, it all erupts and kicks off. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know where we go forward. Um, I'm not, sorry, I've been talking a lot there with that. No, 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 not, not at all. No, I was just going to go and say, so you, it kind of, so you left the military then because it was just, you know, it was becoming too unmanageable. The situation was becoming unmanageable. Um, what made you then decide to, wait? and, you know, you said a few times running away, what, you know, when did the when did the buying of the boat and sailing off into the um, Pacific or the Atlantic? When did that kind of idea come across? Um, it sounds almost as if there's been a bit of a plan going on here, as if I sort of rationalise things and, and sort of right, what shall I do next? Mm. The, the honest truth, Alex, is there was no thinking or planning whatsoever, which is why I don't. I'm reluctant to take credit. As if I'm a, you know, you're a master at dealing with PTSD or something. I'm not. It just evolved, and and that is an interesting theme in my life. How things doors open, without any you know rational explanation, and and this was one of them. 
um, holding that mask in place was getting harder and harder. So it's becoming more obvious to the people who were writing my reports, for example, my superiors, that I wasn't quite, you know, there. Mm. I mean, I think it was generally known what my background was. Nobody ever referred to it out of, uh, you know, consideration for me, which was very kind. But um, nonetheless, it must have been deemed as being an interesting factor here. You know, you, when you're thinking about this guy's future employment and what kind of trust can we put in him? Mm. And that was one of the reasons why I mentioned earlier on in our private conversation that I wrote a letter with 10 points asking early retirement. I never mentioned anything to do with PTSD, uh, not merely because I'd never heard that phrase and didn't know anything about it, but because I, I wasn't even thinking in those terms. You know, I just knew I had to go. So I was following a gut instinct more than anything else. Um, how, how we came to be on the boat was just another one of those strange things. Uh, it was a light bulb moment. I was sat in my yeah. office staring out the window at nothing, doing nothing for a whole whole morning. And suddenly this idea came into my head. Yeah. And it was a boyhood dream. It's one of those, you know, impossible dreams that you dream sometimes. Um, and I suddenly thought, actually, I can do this. Mm. So in spite of the fact I've got no money, and although we weren't legally divorced at that point, I'd already signed the house over and mm. I took nothing out of the marriage because I didn't want to disrupt the children. Yeah. And I also felt guilty as well. You know, I, I've, I've, I've contributed this. Well, it's not just her, it's me as well. Um, so I had a clean break and walk away with virtually nothing, really. Um, I thought to myself, you can do it. And so within, it was all threes, within about three minutes, I was back in the mess looking at a magazine which had um, adverts, I think Yachting Monthly, I think. And I rang nice. a guy called Peter Gregson, who was a, a yacht broker in Dartmouth. And uh, he answered immediately. And by the time I got back to the office, there were faxes coming off the machine. Yeah. And I, I saw the boat I eventually bought. Uh, it was top of the list. I looked at the others as well, and I went straight back to this one. Oh, wow, it's in the Mayflower Marina in Plymouth. Right, I'll go down there now. So I cancelled what I was doing that morning. I lied like a hairy egg. And I got <laughs> in the, uh, the Ford Cortina I had, which is called the Shed, because it kept changing colour every time it rained. And I drove down <laughs> to Plymouth in this thing. And within three hours, I was on the deck of this 38-foot classic uh, what's called an Atlantic power catch hmm. and uh, and within three weeks in spite of my dire financial position I'd actually found the money and bought the boat hmm. um, so that's how it began and that was in 1991 um, the Corps very kindly gave me a lodging allowance so I could live ashore because they didn't want some sweaty old captain like me in the mess with <laughs> impressionable young officers well, that's how it's put to me. But no sooner had I committed myself to this, they then turned off the tap. So I was now left with a mortgage, which I couldn't support as well as, uh, you know, paying the rent mm. on the flat. So at this point, I said to my girlfriend, as she was at the time, although she'd just moved in with me, how do you feel about living on a boat? And, and then I was actually a bit more brutal than that, to be honest. I gave her a kind of ultimatum, which seems incredibly cruel now. But bless her. And this is why, you know, I, I owe Shirley everything. Um, she didn't even murmur. So we moved on board this very basic yacht, which had no facilities whatsoever, and we started living on board. And um, that, uh, we, that that draft ran out in 1994. We moved in a gale down to Plymouth in February 94. That's another story where a lot of things happened. <laughs> oh, God, nearly came to disaster there. Very close. But it taught me some very important lessons. Um, and the last two years, I was in 4-2 Commando, based in Plymouth. And in 96, you know, I'd, I'd finally left the Corps in February and we finally got out of Plymouth I think late August early September uh, heading for the Caribbean uh, and it took me that long not because of the list of jobs which there's always a list of jobs particularly on an old wooden boat you know you're never going to get off the list but it was the reality that I was actually leaving mm. I wasn't going on a cruise or a nice holiday I'm saying goodbye mm. and the hardest part was saying goodbye to my two very young teenage daughters 
and trying to explain to him why why daddy's got to leave and i couldn't even find the words to explain it to myself let alone them so you know it was it was a horrible time but anyway we got out and we got south of the ediston and uh, out of vhf range and all the clothes came off and suddenly i'm feeling great yeah. you know i don't have to explain anything to anybody i don't have to turn to anymore just just me and the sea and yeah. you know that, that, i am a seaman by nature so i mean that's my default setting if you like so it was a running away but it was running back to where i belong um, yeah that's that's how we came to be doing that oh absolutely brilliant that's i mean i'm very jealous of that sea life it just sounds it, it sounds fun uh, <laughs> oh, we've got to have a we've got to have a separate conversation, or I'll send you some pictures and films and stuff. But yeah, I could talk all day about it. It's a, it is a beautiful way of life, but you've got to yeah. be adventurous, and it's not the idyllic life that everybody seems to think it is. Definitely oh, is not. It sorts it, the men out from the boys. I'll tell you. Oh yeah, in my in my mind of you just cruising around the uh, Caribbean, I'm assuming it it wasn't all you know Caribbean and you know the occasional trips. Um, we never South got America. there. Oh, you never got there, okay. <laughs> no, no. Well, me being a rebel, I've got to do it my own way, haven't I? So I can't do the obvious sensible thing. Most people come out of Plymouth or somewhere, turn left, go down to the Canaries, yeah. and then follow you know, the Ark, for example, the Atlantic Rally for Cruisers, or something yeah. like that, across to St. Lucia or something. You know, That's the sensible thing. No, I decided I'd go to the Azores first, which is going the wrong way. But it, you know, it's the Azores, it's in the middle Atlantic, so let's try that. And then after we've been there, we'll go to the Canaries, then we'll go to the Cape Verdes, then we'll go across. That was the plan. Well, we never even got to the Azores. We got about 500 miles south of Ireland and the water tank fell apart. And uh, we had to go back to fix it. Um, and yes, that was an interesting appreciation, working out what do we do? Because suddenly we've lost our 70 gallons of water. It's in the bilge now and it's contaminated with diesel and oil and things. <laughs> um, so, so we lived on Tango Orange for a week. You know that phrase, oh. have you been tangoed? We were definitely <laughs> tangoed. Well, we could cope with it, but the dog hated it. The little Rosie. She was a little Cairn Terrier. She was a proper sea dog. Um, yeah, that, and so the story goes on, you know, and we zigzagged around and eventually, um, it's circumstances really. Um, the weather was bad. We had three gales. The last one was a big one, a Force 9. That had us hove to off Cape St. Vincent for about three days. And that's where I made a decision, you know, um, you can have a scrapbook of fantastic photographs of waves, although pictures of waves never look as big as the real thing. Um, or you can have a wife, but I doubt you can have both. And I thought, well, the waves aren't so important, are they? So we pulled into to Portugal uh, to lick our wounds. We lost the dinghy in the gale. That was the only damage we sustained. And we decided to have a re-evaluation. So we stopped for the winter in a place called Lagos, right out in the west of the Algarve, a beautiful place. And... Uh, having spent a winter there, really recovering from 20 years on the front line and everything else, um, decided to look at the Mediterranean instead. So we came in here and we've been here ever since. Oh, absolutely fantastic. And you also um, had your third um, child, am I right? Yeah, you said you had two daughters, yeah. That's correct, Tom. Yes, Tom was born in 2000. He's a millennium baby. Uh, <laughs> he was actually born in Torquay. Uh, because we, we lost a baby a, a year or so previously through spina bifida. Um, so when Tom came along, um, we decided to do the whole thing in the UK and Shirley comes from Torquay. So she went home essentially for a few months. Yeah. Um, the first 10 weeks of Tom's life was spent in Torquay. His first sea crossing was the River Dart on the ferry to go and watch Pete Goss, who was just a, a sailed that very afternoon for that uh, epic voyage he did. Um, and the next voyage he did was on the ferry across to Cherbourg. And uh, and then that was it. He was living on board the boat until he was nine years of age. So oh. uh, that was the first nine years of his life. <laughs> That's absolutely fantastic. How did you school him? Did you just did you, did you, did you, were you given books and stuff and just went, here you go? 
<laughs> I, I must admit this is more my fault well this is entirely my fault um i had this naive belief we could actually carry on teaching him on board the boat ah. um but you know i've got great respect for teachers even though i only remember two of my teachers with any real fondness mm. um but of course teachers have changed over the years haven't they um no, it was way beyond my capability. We got him to write his name on a chalkboard, which we were immensely proud of. We had a huge celebration. Looking back now, it wasn't a big academic sort of step forward. But anyway, from our point of view, it seemed to be a big thing. But then I thought about it and thought, no. But it was my wife, really, who, who bit the bullet and said the right thing. She said, no, look, we can't do this. Mm. But the biggest issue wasn't just the education, which obviously is important. It was the fact that he wasn't getting the contact with kids of his own age. Yeah. You know, we're, we're old parents. I mean, if you're living in young parents, I suppose, you know, the gap is not so great. You might argue it's not such a big issue. But for old folks like us, you know, it's, it's, it's a wrong thing for a young person. Yeah. Um, so that, there were a combination of factors like that. But anyway, we happened to be here in San Antonio Harbor, which the only place at that point, I'm not sure if it's still relevant in the Western Med where you could anchor for free. I oh, mean, nice. everywhere switched on there. You know, if you're going to anchor somewhere for free, you can guarantee it's pretty grotty. You know, you're going to be up a river covered in mosquitoes or you're going to be a filthy harbour that nobody wants to be in or something like that. Um, so that was the attraction. And um, Cheryl said to me, um, you know, go and find a school. So I put my dog robbers on, you know, my smart Harris tweed jacket and my core tie and I buffed my shoes up and I got all the gear out. I thought that would impress. And it was... <laughs> totally stupid because nobody in spain wears a tie and uh, i walked around the town getting sweatier and sweatier and i couldn't get into a school because they were all shut naturally you know as soon as the kids are inside they shut the gates so i went back you know thinking that's a total failure so the following day i just put on my scronky old rugby shorts and a four five commando t-shirt and i went into ibiza itself on the other side of the island the the capital and i walked around looking for the education department <laughs> and um, i found this little office two very charming ladies but they only spoke Catalan. If, yeah. if, you've, if you've learned any Welsh, you're halfway to learning Catalan. Oh, nice. And, um, <laughs> so I was completely out of my depth. But anyway, they were charming and they said to me, uh, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to put him into a school. And they said, um, well, what school do you want him to go to? I haven't a bloody clue. <laughs> but I'd heard of this place called Cancoish. So I said, Cancoish? Oh, yes, yeah, see, see. So she got on the phone and gabbled away in Catalan. She said, OK, you go now. I said, well, where is it? She said, well, San Antonio up the hill. So, and I was going out the door. She said, oh, hang on. She said, uh, what is your address? And I went, ah, right. Um, well, we live on a boat. And I could see her eyes going, right. <laughs> in the middle of San Antonio Harbor. And she went, ah, right. And she went, okay, numero uno calle de la mar. And our address became number one C Street. And, <laughs> and, and that's Spanish administration for you, right? It either works for you or against you. And, uh, and I've got Spanish friends born and bred here, so I don't understand it. We try to get our kids into that school, and we couldn't. And you just turn up from nowhere uninvited, and you've managed to achieve it. How did you do it? You know, so it was probably the rugby shirts or the 4-5 commando t-shirt. But, <laughs> but anyway, he started school at the age of four. So after that, the sailing stopped, of course. We just yeah. we just Liverpool from that point onwards. But then, but then you then went on to start the Mountain Way, which is what you're doing now. Um, an incredibly important thing. How did that happen? And do you mind telling our listeners a bit about what the Mountain Way does? Surely. Uh, well, how it came about was after the 2008 thing in the Malaya, I realised, you know, I'm on the right track here. I've got to get back into work. Um, I, I was working with a bloke out there who was um, very keen to start a maritime security company. And back then there were, you know, it was all the heyday of the, the anti-piracy stuff. So uh, I... I devoted quite a bit of time to being in Singapore with him and we tried to get this company off the ground but we were incompatible mm. we were too far behind the drag curve we couldn't catch up 
we didn't have a lot of capital behind us to get it rolling. You know, it was a busted flush from the beginning, to be honest. But anyway, I learned a great deal about law and various other things, um, which, which aren't really that relevant anymore. But um, the switch came when I went to that back to my unit and gave that presentation uh, on the, the 6th of September 2012. That was the day when I said, right, let's forget all this. You know, to be honest, trying to get a maritime security company off the ground felt like pushing a wheelbarrow uphill with no wheels. As soon as I started helping guys with PTSD, it was like being on rails that are greased with no brakes. I couldn't stop it. Yeah. it. It was that dramatic. You know, it was completely different. Suddenly, when people heard what I was doing, the doors opened. People gave me money. People started offering advice and things. You know, it felt brilliant. So yeah. I just knew almost from the start that this is what you're supposed to be doing. Um, so anyway, uh, I've got a great friend called Dom, Dom Morehouse, and... Um, he got in touch or I got in touch with him and uh, I explained what I was doing. He said, well, what do you need? And I said, well, I, I need money. And uh, he said, well, how much do you need? And I said, oh, crikey, you caught me. I, I don't really know. I hadn't worked it out. So anyway, I agreed on a sum and he tripled it and said, here you go. Off you go and do it. And <laughs> wow. it was a staggering sum of money. And I was really blown away by this, you know, an absolute trust as well. He, you know, he trusted me to spend it wisely. So that's how it started. Uh, another friend of mine called Ian, uh, Ian Hopkins, uh, who'd worked with me, he was a former Marine, of course, a Royal Marine. Um, he was now running a charity in Glasgow. So I got in touch with Ian, uh, a veterans charity called the Coming Home Centre based in Govan. And um, I went up to Glasgow and I gave a presentation to his, his sort of clientele, if you like. And three of them put their hands up at the end and said, we'd like to come on the programme. Now, up to that point, all I'd done was doing it all on Google Earth. Mm. And uh, I did a recce for three months in 2013. Um, after I shut down all the maritime security stuff, I then focused on this. And the recce all over the UK was to try and find out what was actually going on. And it was all the negative stuff I heard, particularly from people suffering from PTSD that helped formulate my mind. It was things like guys saying, you know, we've been to a certain well-known charity and we have to sit there and take notes. You know, it feels like you're back at school. I said, okay, so they don't want to take notes. Um, yeah. I went to see this therapist and I had 40 minutes, but I didn't want to talk about this. I wanted to talk about that, but they wanted me to talk about this sort of thing. So I was getting all the negative stuff and I thought, right, well, let's work from the other end and, and let's design something that circumvents all that. And that's how the program started formulating in my mind. Mm. But when I started thinking seriously about this and I took a couple of years over this, um, I, I then decided, well, what really helps? What, what has helped me? And the first thing, apart from the ability to admit you've got a problem, which is the first real step, is um, I realized meditation was helping me. Now, I didn't know it was meditation. I was just staring at the sea and, and, and twiddling my toes in the surf. You know, I wasn't actually focusing on anything. When I started looking at meditation more seriously, I realized we've all been doing it at some point in our lives. We just don't realize it. So once I started seeing it from a formal point of view, I understood this is an important element. Then I thought about the very basic principle of most of the guys I'd spoken to, if not all of them, had said, you know, we don't want to talk about the issue. And hmm. there is this very understandable attitude that, you know, you don't need to talk about the events themselves. Well, I took the opposite view. I felt from my experiences and what Scotty and I have been through in the Defence Academy is only the latest in a long string of events where I have talked about it to just about any audience I can find. And it began with talking to the platoon commanders at Warminster when I was at Brecon. And that was a real trial. I've had more time to talk about it. There's some mm. amusing things there too. But it was where the, I began to realise this is what you need to do. You need to talk about whatever it is that's troubling you. But the way you talk about it and the way that you deal with it is equally important. It's not just talking about it. The critical element here is regaining control. 
you see, my view is that your mind is like a multi-story car park. This conversation we're having now is like the middle level. You know, it's fairly serious. When you're having a chat at the bar with your friends, you're on the top floor. Mm. But what's going on in the, in the basement is all the subconscious stuff. And I think when you're having a nightmare or flashbacks or any strange behavior, that, that's what it is. It's the stuff down there that we don't want to see. Um, and you've got to find the courage to do that. You've got to go back there. But you've got to go back there in a way that... I was going to say retains control because you haven't actually got it. You've lost it. Regains control is the word I'm looking for, hmm. right? Regain control of it. Um, but we, to do that, that's a big ask. So you've got to build trust. You've got to do it in an environment where it's conducive to this. You've got to give that particular person, we call them guests, as much time as you can feasibly do sensibly so that he can pick the time that suits him and all that kind of stuff. So there was a lot of deduction going on over the period of time. And then I came to realize a lot of things have helped me are what I call my philosophies. Um, which are basically my views on things in life, the, the, the big things that we generally don't get time to discuss yeah. um, because they're relevant. If you're going to put evil in its place, you've got to understand why evil exists. Ergo, why do we go to war? Why did I end up killing that woman and that child in that Iraqi village? These are the guilt issues that I'm talking about. These are the things that are actually causing people to commit suicide. So I'm not saying you can excuse that. What I am saying is you can find a rational solution to it, which is acceptable to you. But to get to that point, you've got to go through these various hurdles in order to open up the mind to that kind of thinking. Now, when you put all that together as a package, you've got a complete solution there, which won't work for everybody. Mm. Um, I guarantee absolutely won't. But for those people who have got the right qualities, it definitely does. And and that's been my experience ever since I started in 2014. Hmm. So um, and I'm I'm very confident now that the, the solution to any problem is firstly to talk about it. That's probably the most beneficial you can do. And it doesn't have to be in the environment I'm talking about. It's whatever's comfortable for you. But what you don't want to be is under threat. You You want to have the freedom to pick and choose according to your feelings and your mood. And so the program I run um, is it's a two month program. But it culminates in 15 days, either in the French Pyrenees in the summer or here in Ibiza in the winter. And the reason for the difference is because in the winter, the mountains due to snow become very serious mountains. And although I call the charity the Mountain Way, it's not about mountaineering. We're not about adventurous training and we are not a group activity. I work on a one to one basis with every guest. And right now in front of me behind the computer, I've got six names on the board who are the next six potential guests. Now, yeah. they may not all come onto the program, but mm. I'm at the point now of encouraging them to face these challenges, overcome their various inhibitions um, and, and get them to a point where they want to commit. Once yeah. they're at that point, we then start working more seriously on getting them into the right frame of mind and, and enabling them to find their solution. And that's the final point. This is not a template solution. Everyone is bespoke and unique for the individual guest. So it takes into account his entire life. And an interesting little comment here or a factor, if you like, is my experience, I would say roughly about 75% of the people I've helped have all got problems that started in childhood. So you're talking about, um, you know, being abused or living in an orphanage or abandoned, that kind of situation as well. Um, and that is, in a lot of cases, where the PTSD elements really begin. Yeah. And it's the military experience that just takes it over the edge, if you like. Mm. Wow, that's absolutely fantastic that you've, you know, it's inspiring that you've gone through all, all that and then you've then gone up to set up something to give something back and also to help people, help people who are going through a similar experience. Um, just in case any of our listeners would like to get in contact, um, how would they go about do that? Would they go on to, what is your website? 
Yeah, I would suggest the website is probably the best way. Um, we've just redone it over Christmas and uh, I'm, I'm quite proud of John Bailey, our chairman, built the whole thing and he's done a really nice job. And I'm actually getting into blogging now, which is a new experience oh, for me. Nice. Um, <laughs> well, and well done, mate. Thank you very much. Yeah, I, I, can, I can actually spell nowadays, Scotty, as well. I've, I've got a dictionary next to me. Um, no, the, the website is www.mountainway.org. www.mountainway.org. Yeah, just go Absolutely on that. Fantastic. And I will our put phone the, number um, and contacts are there. Yeah. I'll put the link for that in the description. So if anyone is listening, go and click onto the description and you can go and click on it there. Um, Please do I'm, listen, guys, because it's an absolutely fantastic website when you go on. And it's not just, uh, you'll see all the information that Andy has there about the Mountain Way, but you'll hear guys on there and they've done now, went on and told a little bit more of their story on YouTube channels. A couple of guests come on and speak to Andy about it on a podcast. So please have a listen. It's absolutely fantastic. It just shows that what Andy does certainly does help, and it's yeah. um, and it's an absolutely great charity. Yeah. Well, I've only got um, I've only got one more question for you, which is a question we ask all our guests at the end. Um, I'm going to open up, open up to the floor before I ask it to anyone. Uh, so, if you two have any, any questions, far away. Um, if you don't, then I shall I shall go. No, I think the only one I've got, Andy, is. Um... Yeah, it must be very satisfying in your journey to um, have been through what you've been through. Uh, and do you see the, the helping others who've been in not the same situation, but are suffering similar uh, consequences for various reasons? Do you see that as part of your recovery and part of paying back to those who've helped you? Is What's that? the satisfaction that you get out of it, it must be hugely satisfying. That's a really good question, um, which I don't get asked very often, but I sometimes think is implied in the way things uh, people talk to me. Um, to be perfectly honest, Rupert, I can't say for 100% it's not a guilt driven thing. Um, I actually say I've dealt with the guilt. It did take a long time to do that, but when I compartmentalize or if you like, itemized the various elements, the components of PTSD. Um, I'm still a bit hypersensitive. Um, if there's something inflammatory on television, I generally won't watch it. But, uh, you know, if you're talking about Saving Private Ryan, that kind of thing, I tend not to watch those sort of things. But if you put Bambi on, I'll be in tears and I can't stop the tears from flowing. So I think uh, I see it as a natural outlet of my emotions. So um, I don't have any inhibitions about that anymore. I'm not a crybaby that goes around crying all the time, but I'm, I'm perfectly happy to release the emotion. Um, the hypervigilance is more a question of um, loud bangs and surprises. I still today can be affected by those to a certain extent. Um, the rage, if you like, is I, I call it 100% or, or zero. What I mean by that is as long as I avoid the areas where it could be triggered off, for example, a pub full of drunk people, you know, um, going on about a football match or something, that kind of environment, I can't do that anymore. As long as I don't put myself in those positions, therefore the red button is not exposed, then it's highly unlikely that's ever going to be tripped out. But there have been a couple of times when I have lost control through anger, through extreme anger. And the thing about rage is, I think there are three consequences. I shall either end up in prison or hospital or the grave or maybe all three but the, the problem with rage is there's no consequential fear 
once you've crossed that line and you, you're suddenly going for it, you don't care about the consequences, and that's why it can't happen. Uh, I'm not saying I'm a dangerous animal and I've got to be kept in a cage because I'm under control and I know myself, but it's not something you can test either. So therefore, it's an unknown quantity. That's why it's zero or 100%. So to come finally to the guilt part of it, um, because I'm aware of those limitations, I can honestly say that the guilt is not an issue. And therefore, I don't think that I'm running this charity purely because I still feel guilty for what happened. Um, the satisfaction side of life is immense when I finally, and this sounds very crude, hook a guest, and I can't think of a better way of explaining it. But to me, getting people to commit to this program is like tickling trout with boxing gloves on. You know, <laughs> it, it's almost impossible. And this is not a reflection on those people. This is absolutely normal. Look at my example. I was too frightened to go sick. I wouldn't put my hand up and admit I got a problem. I toughed it out until eventually I couldn't tough it out anymore. You know, um, I finally had to accept my own limitations, which were absolute. So, and a lot of people don't have the advantages of my background. So they, they, they're, they're working with far less um, ability, if you like, to deal with these things. And this is tragically why we're seeing so many suicides. So the, the corollary of that is when I've got somebody that finally commits to the program and I think confident they're going to go forward, then I start to feel a glow. And then all my feelings, which includes love, goes towards that person and it probably can be a little bit overwhelming i'm trying not to get over the top or get all too touchy-feely or that sort of stuff i'm very aware of our feelings as men and our you know our own requirements and that stuff but i don't hold back and uh I, it's like everything in life you know if you're going to get into a relationship give it 100 percent. there's no point giving 90 percent in anything it's either 100 percent or there's no point um so and that's my view to this so i throw everything at it and that's what helps people to sort of engage with me because the empathy is very real. And then we do the open door uh, visit, which is where it's a minimum thing. There's a minimum of three days with that particular guest. Uh, we call them potential guests at that point where I explain the whole thing and we build the program together. So it's unique for him or her, if the case may be. And um, and that really takes them over the edge in terms of motivation. They're ready to go. And then within a couple of weeks, I fly them out to the experience site, wherever it is, and we, we go through the program. Um, at the end of that, I'm so drained, I normally go back to the chalet in the mountains and go to bed for two days. I won't come home straight away. It's not because I'm wound up with negative stuff. I've heard all the stories, all the horror stories, and those don't have an effect. It's more the transference of negativity, which has a dampening effect on me. So although I don't feel depressed, I feel drained. And I usually just just mong for a couple of days and before I go home. But that to me is an indication of how much effort it has taken. And then within a couple of weeks, people have got off the high point and there's a bit of an anticlimax, which is fully understandable. And, you know, we, we warn people of this and we support them through it. And then within a three months, things are starting to happen in their lives. And whereas previously somebody's stuck in a building on his own, and I can mention numerous people, some of whom hadn't been outside, um, there's one person I'm helping at the moment who's gone silent, but this person has not been outside the house for three years. Um, and then you, you suddenly see pictures on Facebook and they're doing things that they hadn't done for years and the relationship's picking up or we've even saved it. Mm. And we've saved a few marriages that were right on the rocks, right on the edge. And I'm thrilled to bits when I see all that. Yeah. And that is beyond any any experience I've had before. Nothing relates to this in terms of passing out a training top or, you know, being a kid at school uh, in Christmas, that kind of thing. I can't think of any experience in my previous life that equates that feeling of uh, 
it's not success it's much deeper than that it's uh, it's profoundly satisfying and i often sit here if i'm having a bad moment i'll just think of some of those people and straight away i'm up on top again you know so sorry a bit of a long-winded answer there but bottom line is yes i'm deeply satisfied with what i'm doing and the proof of the pudding is i'm not getting paid um, <laughs> i was paying myself a small amount a couple of years ago but as soon as the covid thing stopped i said no the money is needed by the guests and i know that sounds heroic but it's more a question of motivation that this is how motivated i am to do this yeah. so even if the charity failed for some reason and all my trustees left me i go back to being a cic and just carry on nothing yeah. would change for me personally this is my mission basically oh, brilliant That's fantastic yeah, yeah. Scotty, just blown away by the whole story listening to it again Andy oh I just want to say is thanks for having the courage um, and the leadership there to speak and talk quite openly about um, the incident and the aftermath really and, um, and it's great that you've set up this amazing charity which helps so many guys uh, like us and um, I only wish you all the best in the world with everything that happens and I hope to um, get some FaceTime with you maybe this year or the next or whatever but um, as long as you got clothes on this time that'll be a bonus. <laughs> well you're, you're, a fi- you're a fine one to talk mate I, um, because uh, I'm hoping to be in your lake with you with or without clothes sometime this summer as you know one of our potential guests is in your town or very yes. close to it you know so I expect to be over your way hopefully in a few months time yeah. Oh, so I will look you up then, mate. Fantastic. I can't wait well, to see that photo. <laughs> my casa is your casa. <laughs> well, um, uh, Andy, we'd like to end on one final question. As a military family charity, um, we'd just like to know, what does family mean to you? You did ask me this question. You primed me, didn't you? And I, I did, spent a bit I of did. time coming up with a really clever answer, which I've completely forgotten. Oh, so, no. so, 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 so now, now this has to be absolutely genuine. Oh, well, the clever ones are never the right ones, are they? Um, no, I think the, the, the simple answer is, is everything, of course. Um, I th- it's always been everything, but it was something you took for granted, to be perfectly frank. Uh, particularly, as I explained earlier on, you know, the career you can't rationalize those two very easily. I think every service person who's in a marriage or relationship, to be more precise, um, has the same difficulties in trying to get that balance right. Um, did I get the balance wrong? No, I don't think so at the time because I don't think there's any point in regrets. Um, you know, you if you spend your life regretting, you never make any progress. Um, I learned a lot from it, though. What I've got now is. Well, I've just said that the charity, you know, is immensely satisfying and it is and it's a huge driver. But. Without the family, I don't think it would have any meaning. And it isn't simply to earn a bit of money for the family. That's not the reason. It's much more than that. You know, I mean, I talked to my son, who's now 20, about certain aspects of it. You know, he's really interested in what I'm doing. It's not going to necessarily affect him or drive his life uh, aspirations. But um, I feel sorry for people, the people I have met who haven't got family. And I think, you know, the loneliness is a big aspect that all servicemen, when they leave the service, to some extent feel. And without that family support, without having that person you can talk to, especially in the dark hours when things are a bit bleak, um, life would be almost pointless, to be honest. So, uh, yeah, what, what else can I say about family? It is everything, really. You know, and it, it, if, if my wife said to me, leave the charity tomorrow, it would be a difficult decision, but I would do it because she's the most important thing to me. Oh, absolutely brilliant. That's a fantastic answer, Andy. And just once again, thank you so much. 
Um, this has been this has been amazing. Thank you everyone for going and listening to part one and onto part two as well. Um, thank you to Scotty and Rupert for joining us today as well. Um, and once again, Andy, thank you so much. This has been, I think, a massive eye opener. I think for a lot of people. I know we've touched on some pretty um you know tough subjects so you know if anyone has been affected by this you know they can always call samaritans on 116123 um they're there 24 hours in case anyone needs to go and speak to them um make sure to like and subscribe to the give us time social media pages uh, make sure to follow us on spotify so you don't miss out on more future podcasts but once again andy thank you so much it's been absolutely brilliant so thank you thank you it's been my privilege and yeah, thank you all very much for awesome. listening.